Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week we hear the tragic yet beautiful story of the 17-year-old martyr Jane Grey with Dr. Michael Haken. Mary gave Jane two mercies. One is the mercy of beheading. Uh, normally the Roman Catholic Church always burned heretics. And number two, it was to be a private execution. Uh, normally the executions of all the people that Mary was involved in, the men and women were executed publicly. You know, learning about the lives of Christians in the past has this special way of inspiring us today. You know, something about disciplining our minds by taking them out of this present culture and placing them in another, it's really powerful. And even though culture is constantly shifting, it's changing, people generally struggle with the same things. They're happy about the same things. And God is the same as well. So there's a lot to be learned and a lot that can be learned from those who have gone before us. That's why we're taking time to talk about one more powerful young adult in history this week, and that is Jane Grey. So let's get into this conversation about Jane Grey with Dr. Michael Haken. With me today is Dr. Michael Haken. Michael is professor of church history and biblical spirituality at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as the director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies. Uh, Michael's also written many, many books. Anyways, great to have you back on the show again, Michael. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Isaac. Thank you. Yeah, earlier this year, um, Michael was gracious enough to take us through uh, the main events of church history. We sort of split it up into four different conversations. So if you're interested in church history from pretty much, you know, the end of Acts all the way up to today, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. Um, anyways, it was our third conversation when you were talking about the Reformation, Michael, that you mentioned in passing uh, Jane Grey. And you just you just said it, it, her name and a list of others where you said, here's a martyr, Jane Grey, you just said that. And after the conversation, I actually looked her up online and I, I listened to one of your presentations on her life and I was just fascinated with this young girl's life and her boldness and her courage, her faith. Um, and it is Jane Grey that we're going to be looking at today. And uh, just so listeners can know, you you live in Canada. I do, yes. Uh, I Yeah, I commute to the States. That's a bit of a long story, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I come down here for two, kind of two-week stints and... Uh, yeah. Well, that's good. Well, it's always good to have uh, another Christian leader from Canada uh, on the show. So that's that's really exciting. So anyways, um, I sort of already talked to our listeners a little bit about Jane Grey, but Michael, why don't you just give us sort of the basic overview of Jane Grey? Who, who is Jane Grey? Yeah, Jane Grey was uh, born in uh, 1537. Uh, she would die, uh, as you've already mentioned, as a martyr in 1553. There is some discussion in recent days that her birth date might be 1536. Be that as it may, it's, she's about 17 or 18 when she dies as a martyr. She was uh, fourth in line by the will of Henry VIII, uh, who was king for most of her early life, uh, fourth in line to the throne. So she if uh, Henry VIII had specified that if his son, Edward VI, died without issue, children, then he would be succeeded by his half-sister, Mary I, who again, if she died without issue, then his children uh, would be succeeded by her sister, half-sister, Elizabeth, and then their first cousin, um, or the second cousin, Jane Grey. So she's born into a household of privilege, wealth, and her mother, Frances Brandon, was the daughter of uh, Henry VIII's favorite sister, Mary Tudor. 
and her husband, a man named Charles Brandon, who was the Duke of Suffolk. So she's very close to the throne. She's raised in a context of privilege. Um, she has uh, significant opportunities in terms of education. She would have learned a number of languages. We know that she was competent in French, uh, Italian, uh, Greek, Latin. Uh, this would have been part of part of a, an upbringing of a, a young woman at the time because there was it was expected that uh, she'd be able to converse in you know the kind of lingua franca of the day which would be either French or Latin and uh, Italian was just again a very common language that would often be taught uh, Greek would have been a bit different that's uh, partly because of her uh, kind of links to the Reformation. Uh, the reformers were very convinced, and rightly so, that there needed to be a knowledge of Greek for the understanding of the scriptures. And uh, she's exposed at a young age to the gospel. Her parents are, you would describe them as, they're worldly. They're interested in getting ahead in the world. So they, they have Jane, they arrange for Jane as a young, very young girl to go probably around nine or ten to the court of Henry VIII, where she lived in the household of Henry VIII's last wife, uh, sixth wife, uh, Catherine Parr, who was an evangelical. And it's probably in Catherine Parr's home that she comes to faith. And um, so that ex that exposure to evangelical faith would have also exposed her to the necessity of learning Greek. And so she probably would have had one of her tutors at that time begin to teach her Greek. So she's learning Greek at the age of nine or ten. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So by the time that she she dies, she's fairly she can write fairly fluently in Greek. Um so she's she's not simply learning how to translate from Greek to English, but would also be learning how to render English into Greek. Which uh often today when Greek and uh a lot of these the classical languages Greek, Latin, Hebrew are taught, people are not taught how to go from English uh, to any of these languages. That's normally not the way it's taught. But the older style would have taught that, and so she would have had that facility. Um, so she's, uh, she's exposed to the Reformation. She begins to correspond with a number of reformers on the continent. And uh, by the time that she does succeed to the throne very briefly, uh, she is uh, gifted. She, she has a good grasp of Reformation theology, and is able, as we will see, to to converse about the faith. Okay, um, amazing. Yeah. So, do would we know any of the reformers by name that she would have come in contact with? Yeah, she has some contact with uh, Heinrich Bullinger, uh, who was in Zurich uh, after the death of uh, Hutrich Zwingli. The Reformation in Zurich went forward under the ministry and leadership of Heinrich Bullinger. So she has some contact with Bullinger. Um, I'm. I don't think we uh, you know, that we know of, and then none of the others that she would have had contact with are well-known figures. But Bullinger would be the best known. Okay. So how then, Michael, did Jane, you know, come to sit on the throne of England? Well, when Henry VIII dies in 1547, um, his will specified that his son uh, Edward would succeed him, and up until very recently, actually. Um, this was the pattern that the eldest son and always son would succeed, and not even even though uh, Edward's sisters Mary and uh, Elizabeth are older than he, 
he was the heir as the, ma- as the oldest male. And he would live, he would reign for six years from 1547 to 1553 and was very committed to the Reformation. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin from Geneva writes to him a number of times describing him as the young Josiah, uh, remembering the reform of Israel in terms of worship and its life under the reign of King Josiah. And uh, there's heavy evidence that uh, Edward was um, definitely regenerate, uh, committed to biblical truth, desirous to see the Reformation go forward. And this is, you know, a boy of 12, wow. 13. <laughs> Amazing. So um, when he he was never a well, uh, he was never a robust individual. And so um, in 1552, he came down with measles, and uh, that led to pneumonia and tuberculosis. And he died in 1553, but prior to his death, he changed his father's will. There used to be evidence, there used to be the argument by historians that uh, those around him, fearing that if the throne passed to Mary, who was an ardent Catholic, that there would be a return to Roman Catholicism in Britain, that they were the ones who kind of manipulated uh, Edward. Uh, the evidence now is quite the opposite. Recent historians, particularly a man named Dermot McCulloch, who has done a number of fine work, a number of fine books on the Reformation, and the one that I'm thinking of here is called, in its North American imprint, Tudor Church Militant. And he argues that on the basis of, of significant documentation that we have from Edward, that Edward was indeed committed to the Reformation. He himself realized when he died around the age of 15, 16, that uh, there was no way that Mary was going to continue the Reformation. She was opposed to it, and that this then posed a problem for the ongoing viability of reform in England, and therefore he changed his father's will. And he made Jane, Lady Jane... Uh, his heir. He knew that she would continue the kind of pathway that he had begun to promote. Okay. It's interesting he bypassed Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a Protestant at this point and also professing Christian, um, but probably because she, her mother, Anne Boleyn, was pregnant when she married Henry VIII. And so there was the charge of or the, the, the kind of um, stain of illegitimacy that kind of hung over her all her life, really. And so probably for that reason, he passed her by and, and made Lady Jane his heir, but did not tell her so. So when he died, uh, his death was kept secret for a day or so. And then uh, representatives of the crown went to Jane and uh, surprised her by curtsying, or sorry, not curtsying, kneeling, uh, bowing and kneeling, to her, pledging allegiance to her. She had no idea what they were up to. It became very obvious what they were up to. And uh, she fainted. Apparently, we were told that she fainted. And because you cannot touch the king's person unless they give you permission, uh, she was left lying on the floor until she came to. Oh, my gosh. And uh, when she did so, uh, where there is recorded a prayer that she made in which she pledged herself to you know, undertake for the glory of God, the rule of England, and that she required God's grace and strength and would reign as queen for roughly nine days. So in, how old was she then when they, when, you know, they told her that she... Well, again, so this is 1553, so uh, it all depends on whether or not uh, she was born in 1536, 1537. So she's... um, 
She's around 16, maybe 17. Okay. So you say around nine days. So do you want to just let us know what exactly happened in those nine days until, until, her, until her death? Yeah, there were, there were a couple of official banquets. Uh, she signed two official documents as Queen Jane. She was never officially crowned. And so some have argued, you know, she really wasn't in any way, shape, or form queen because she was never actually crowned. But uh, Edward VIII, who, who abdicated and caused a crisis in the monarchy in the 1930s, he was never officially crowned either. He was king for about 11 months, but his official coronation never took place. Um, so, and nobody ever doubts that he was actually, you know, king. Mm. And so I, 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 I mentioned that because there's a recent series of biographies of the kings and queens of England, looking at all of them. And, uh, Jane Grey has not been included and I wish she had been. And I suspect the argument is that she really was never queen, but there is one on Edward VIII. Um, and so... Anyway, so uh, she was never officially crowned, but she did sign a number of documents as Queen Jane. So there were, as I said, a couple of official banquets, a number of documents were signed. Obviously, when Mary found this out, Mary was living at the time in uh, southeast England. There was no way she knew, she knew her father's will and that the right of succession from her father's point of view belonged to her. She was not going to take this lying down. She raised an army, marched on London, and uh, um, in really kind of a bloodless coup d'etat, uh, took took over uh, London, took the crown, and uh, imprisoned Jane. At this point, Mary's has a bit of a conundrum. Number one, uh, the whole idea of executing a fellow noble person, especially somebody who's being a monarch, however briefly, was distasteful to many of these people. Uh, even though Mary is a queen, uh, a Roman Catholic, and Lady Jane is, is an evangelical Protestant, because all of them have the conviction of what we call the divine right of kings, is that the, the king or queen is appointed by God, only God can really remove them, and that by death. To do otherwise is to violate a, a fundamental kind of part of the fundamental order that God has established in the world. Uh, if, if Mary I of England had had her druthers, she would not have executed Jane. But uh, two things take place. One is Jane's father, when Mary marched on London, Jane's father uh, went out to meet Mary and claimed, he said, oh, at, at the time of Jane's uh, being appointed queen and the declaration that she was queen, he had pledged to fight for her till the death. Well, as soon as Mary launches her coup d'etat, he completely immediately switches sides. Wow. He goes out and meets uh, Mary and claims, oh, it was a big mistake. And so he's really kind of a, you know, he's, 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 he's the sort of man who shifts as, as the weather shifts. Um, Anyway, within a few months of Mary's taking power, he starts a rebellion. It's put down, he's executed, but Mary realizes that Jane, and the rebellion is in the name of Jane, and Mary realizes that Jane is just too, she's just too dangerous a person. Yeah. She's an icon of evangelical Protestantism. And then the other thing is that Jane refuses to embrace Roman Catholicism, and Mary is prosecuting a, a program in England of eliminating all of the key Protestant leaders. 
by the time that Mary is burned, uh, is executed rather, she wasn't burned. She was her head was de- she was decapitated. By the time that she's killed, Mary has already killed a large number of Protestant leaders by burning. Men like John Hooper, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, yeah. and Jane. Jane just falls into that that category of just uh, an incorrigible evangelical. Mary wanted to try to save her soul. Uh, she was going to execute her, but um, and so she sent a man named John Feckenham to talk to Jane uh, about four days before Jane was executed. And we have the we have the conversation because Jane recorded it afterwards. And the conversation revolves around three issues. One is the issue of how are we saved? And Feckenham insists it's by faith and works. Um, and Jane is insistent on the Reformation principle that we are saved by faith alone, that our works uh, cannot ever measure up, and that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's death, it's by faith in his, his death and that death alone that saves us. And then secondly, there is a debate which was very central to the Reformation about what takes place at the, at the, at the celebration of the Mass, or as the evangelicals would describe it from the base of the Scripture, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Um, Feckenham is insistent that the bread and the wine are turned into the very body and blood of Christ. Jane's response is, no, this is not biblical. Where do you find that in Scripture? And so there's, there's a part of the conversation revolves around that. And then the final part of the conversation, which is, again, a very critical Reformation conversation, is uh, how do we know truth? How do we, how do we know that we are saved by faith alone? How do we know that the Lord's Supper is not the celebration of the transubstantiation of the bread and the wine is the very body and blood of Christ? Well, by Holy Scripture alone. And Feckenham insists, no, no, we know truth by the Church and Scripture. It's the Church's interpretation of Scripture. And Jane insists, no, no, it's Scripture alone. So I guess to sort of put it in our in our mindset, here's 16- or 17-year-old Jane uh, in prison who's uh, arguing with this Catholic scholar who is much older than, much older than she. Yes, yeah, and he's uh, John Feckenham is 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 hardly is is unless you're a historian who studies the Tudor period, well, you wouldn't know the name John Feckenham. But in his own day, he was a very he was renowned as a gifted uh, English Catholic uh, apologist. And uh, Jane wins the debate. There's no doubt about that. So at the end of the debate, Feckenham was so moved by Jane's plight that he asked if she could accompany her when she was going to be beheaded. Uh, Mary gave Jane two mercies. One is um, the mercy of beheading. Okay. Uh, normally, you burned the Roman Catholic Church always burned heretics. Wow! Wow! And number two, um, it was to be a private execution. Normally, the executions of all the people that Mary uh, was involved in, the, the men and women were executed publicly. So huge crowds would gather. In this case, there would have been a, only a few people. And Feckenham knew that Mary would not allow Jane a chaplain, an evangelical chaplain, and so he asked if he could accompany her, which he did. On the day of her execution in February of 1554, he was there. Um, he went to her, with her to the scaffold. He read. He began to read Psalm 51, 
the penitential psalm of David after the murder of Uriah and the commission of adultery of Bathsheba and and, uh, David's repentance. Um, And he only got halfway through it. He, He broke down weeping. And it was a remarkable scene. Jane had to go over and comfort him. And she finished the reading of the psalm and then uh, was led to the place where she would be, you know, on on the scaffold where she would be decapitated, blindfolded. And the last words she uttered in this world were, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But just before she had gone to the point of place of execution, and he can still go there, he can, in the Tower of London, uh, there is a chapel called the Advincula or Advincula Chapel. And in front, I was just there this summer, They've put up um, a beautiful, um, a huge kind of um, circular bowl in which the names of those who are executed at this point or this place are listed. And one of them is Jane Grey. And she, her body then was buried under the chapel. And so just before she went to the place of execution, she had given her a prayer book. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which had reformed worship along evangelical lines, had been issued in 1552 by Thomas Cramner. And she gave that prayer book to her jailer. And in it, she wrote at the beginning in in three sentences, uh, one in Greek, one in English, one in Latin. Yeah. Uh, something to the effect that if justice be done with my body because of its sins, uh, my soul will be justified before God. That's amazing. That, that that even though my uh, naivety, and that's my word, that's not her exact word, uh, should have caused me to receive mercy, God and posterity, these are her exact words, will show me favor. And uh, it's turned out that way. I mean, she becomes very quickly... Um, a paragon of evangelical witness, uh, an icon in a good sense for the, or a poster child, if you want to use our contemporary terms, for the evangelical faith. Uh, the Victorians loved her story. Yeah. Uh, they had a r- romantic, melodramatic streak. There is a very famous portrait of her being, uh, at the time of her execution, uh, done by a, a Victorian portrait artist. Wow. And uh, in recent years, again, there's been a renewed interest in her. Uh, probably the best book on her is Faith Cook's uh, Lady Jane Grey. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael, for just sharing her story. Uh, it definitely is encouraging, especially the, the point really of this little small series looking at Spurgeon and Jane Grey's to look at these lives of younger people. I mean, she, was, she died when she was 16, 17, martyred, to see her faith and, and the boldness and the courage and the and the fact that she really knew what she believed and was able to, you know, talk with this, you know, Feckenham was just amazing. So as we wrap this up, I want to ask you a couple questions and they're sort of like shotgun approach. They're just sort of quick answers. And I want to give you some historical liberty here, uh, which is probably something that maybe church historians love to hear. <laughs> um, so could you imagine, could you imagine some things that Jane may have been up to um, at various times in her teenage life before she was made queen? So let's say at a 9 p.m. on Friday, what, what do you think Jane would be up to? <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, in her, by the time we encounter her as in the, kind of uh, the historical scenes that I've described there, uh, she would have been a fairly ardent 
uh, evangelical. Right. Um, usually bedtime would have been around uh, sunsetting. And so she would have probably, yeah, she probably would have been praying. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, 9 p.m. Friday, you're, you're probably turning in for bed. And uh, there would have been uh, evening prayers, the Book of Common Prayer. I love it. In the household of Catherine Parr, uh, there was morning and evening prayer. And she would have been used to a pattern that the last half hour before going to bed would have been spent in prayer. And so there would be a short Bible reading, some prayers said. That, that's awesome. I love that. Um, again, so here's another one more thing with some uh, historical liberty here. If Jane had the opportunity just for a moment to look into the future at the North American Evangelical Church, what do you think she'd say? And I, I, I'm even thinking especially to youth and young adult groups. Well, I think, I think she would challenge us about our lukewarmness and especially uh, challenge young people that uh, life um, in this world is brief, and uh, the decisions that we make in this world, uh, upon them hang eternity. And she was led by grace to make uh, the, the, the right decision. Yeah. That um, uh, the, there, are some things in, there are some things that are more important than our lives. And I think if she were to say anything down to the future, it would be that uh, the choice that she made, uh, she would not regret. Yeah, that's good. Because to give your life for Christ, um, after all, what he has done for us is, is the least that we can do in one sense. Um, and um, I think, I think her, her challenge would be to our lukewarmness. Mm, that's good. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom today. Uh, to our listeners, if you want to check out more resources from Michael, his books, or his blogs, and all that different stuff, you can just head to andrewfullercenter.org. Uh, on there is lots of stuff that Michael um, has done. Uh, yeah, so anyways, again, thank you so much, Michael, and I hope to have you back on again soon. My pleasure. That was Dr. Michael Haken. Uh, if you enjoyed this history lesson and this biography, uh, make sure to go back in our archives and find the four other episodes with Dr. Haken that explain an overview of the history of the church. He goes from the early kind of church to the, which is called the patristic period, then the medieval church, then the reformation period, and then the modern church movement as well. So check those out for sure. Also, before we wrap up here, I wanted to make a quick note to all those in secular universities or colleges who are part of the sort of the formal or informal Christian group there. Uh, we'd love to hear what it's like, uh, you know, firsthand to live as a Christian in a non-Christian school, in a non-Christian environment like that. So if that's you, uh, please talk to us, email us at hello at indoubt.com. Now, if InDoubt is a ministry that you'd like to donate to, and I might add, you know, everything we do is sustained by those who believe in our mission, uh, then please consider clicking the donate button and following the simple instructions at indoubt.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. You can also text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 604-670-5179. Connect with us throughout the week on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love that. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes. That goes a long way. And if it's not asking too much, in addition to subscribing, uh, it'd be awesome if you would review and rate our show as well. We've gotten a couple new reviews lately, and it's very helpful for us um, you know, to know what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, to produce for you a podcast that you actually want to listen to. 
Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we talk with author Jen Wilkin on Who is God? Looking specifically at his omniscience, his all-knowingness. See you then. In Doubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S.